is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode is brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. Welcome to Beyond the Studio. Today we are interviewing Wendy Chen, a fiber artist and woodworker in San Francisco. Wendy, thank you for being on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can you start by just walking us through your career path thus far, which has been an awesome one as I can see from (laughs) from the internet? (laughs) I always say that, like, if you've lived as long as I have, you better have something to show for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 51, like, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, happy yeah, birthday. We have quite a few things. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, happy belated. Um, thank you. So I, I like to um, say that I feel like I'm on my third life. In my 20s and my 30s, I owned an independent record store here in San Francisco called Aquarius Records. It was a really influential indie shop. Um, known worldwide. And then in the early days of um, of iTunes, Apple really needed music experts to come in and help build the iTunes store. So after 14 years at the record store, I moved to Apple um, and worked there for eight years, mostly doing iTunes related stuff. Um, when I started at Apple, iTunes uh, was just the music shop. Um, and in the following five years, we added podcasts, TV, movies, iBooks, iTunes U, all of the rich media types that make up the iTunes store that we know today. And then we opened, we released iPhone and opened the App Store. So my final three years at Apple, I was at the App Store working as managing editor. Um, The editorial team was the team that decided um, what were the best apps and games to feature on the front page of the store on a weekly basis. So I did that for eight years, and then that brings us up to about 2013, and I decided that I wanted to focus on my own creativity, my own creativity for the first time in my life. So I left, and I've been making work ever since. So I make my living from art now. Uh, I have a little bit of, well, this isn't overlap at all, but I also worked for Apple um, for a little while, but I was in like... A retail store in the Genius Bar, uh, just fixing phones all day. <laughs> that's that's really badass. You know, whenever we needed to hire people for um, the editorial team at the App Store, we always were like, 
who are the awesome people from retail because you guys know exactly what's going on. You know the devices oh, yeah. inside and out. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool to hear, too, that podcasts were introduced into iTunes during your tenure at Apple. So in another roundabout way, we sort of have you <laughs> to thank for being able to work on this podcast at all. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you did enough behind the scenes work. We want to we want to really get you into iTunes more deeply. <laughs> yeah, that's an Pretty incredible life story, um, just in your condensed description, but uh, we really would love to dive further into each of those chapters um, and then talk especially about your current uh, creative work and how you're balancing uh, managing making a living through your work. Um, but just, I'm curious to know a little more about everything that's led up to that. So how did you get involved with or how did you start to... Um, manage this record store? Um, did you found it? Was this something that you'd always had in your background? You always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Oh, no, no, no. I don't know that when I was in my 20s, I even thought about it as being an entrepreneur. I'm Generation X. Maybe you guys think about it that way. But for <laughs> me, I was just like, what's the most interesting thing that I could possibly be involved in? I was just super into music when I was in college. Um, you know, is it radio DJ at the university radio station at the University of Hawaii and then at the um, station at San Francisco State and for me like music was just the scene was just the center of my world it was you know I consider record stores to be the place where you find your next favorite album and it's where you make new friends and you know you might get a date there and you definitely need to figure <laughs> out that's where you figure out where you know the great show is that night that you're all going to go to kind of thing it was just kind of my social scene um, and so I thought it made complete sense to just immerse in it. So I needed a part-time job when I was in college studying filmmaking. So I just started working there. And then when I started to get to the end of my time in college, I realized that I was more interested in the music scene than in filmmaking itself. I realized that filmmaking is a super long drawn out process. Um, a lot of it is asking for money. A lot of it is like having, you know, it just takes years to see the results of all of your creativity and hard work to come to kind of fruition. And it wasn't, that wasn't a process that interested me that much. So I realized that music was kind of, it continued to be the thing that I was most interested in. So yeah, that was the 90s, kind of a 90s indie rock expert. <laughs> when I left college, I decided I would just do it full time. And I purchased, sort of inherited, I purchased the record store from the previous owner um, who had owned it since the 70s. So Aquarius is San Francisco's oldest independent record store. Like the wow. Dead Kennedys met through an ad on our bulletin board. And, oh, my you know, God. Husker Du played, like, their first in-store in San Francisco in our backyard. And kind of a legendary independent store um, yeah. known for championing great music from all genres, from punk to metal to everything in between. I feel like I'm rambling now. No, I <laughs> I am super interested in all of the, the music talk as well because that's something I'm also very passionate about. I have no skills with music whatsoever, but growing up, it was the only way that I felt like I could find people that I related to by going to shows and going to record stores and just trying to make friends with people in bands. And uh, now I'm married to a musician. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think feeling passionate about it doesn't mean that you have to play an instrument. I mean, I always mm -hmm. say I don't really play. I play my records. <laughs> you know, I don't <laughs> I play guitar, but not very well. And I didn't pick it up until later. But being passionate about something and immersing in it is absolutely what I think we should all do at any time in our lives. The things that you're most excited by, you should go straight to the heart of that. Yeah. 
And I, I feel yeah. like not being a, a maker of a type of art doesn't mean that you can't be greatly inspired and, and influenced by that. And like music is a, a prime example. Not not everyone can do it, but I'm, I'm sure just about anybody has their own personal connection to, to music and how it affects them. And especially, God, especially in like punk culture, like it was such a, a specific world that you could be in. Well, you know, the the ethos of punk is, is DIY, right? So it's do it yourself from starting your own label to starting your own band to um, starting your own magazine or, or whatever you want to do. And you get to participate in any way. Um, yeah, you don't have to be the musician in order to play a really key role in whatever scene you're interested, whether it's music or art or, you know, anything else. There's a lot of different roles and you get to define what that role is and other people don't get to define it for you. Yeah. Was it always your ambition to take over the business or was it a little bit of being in the right place at the right time? Like how did uh, it evolve from you working full time to then taking over the business? I was in school and working there part time. And then when I finished making my thesis film and that toured around the world, it played at Sundance and all these different places. But then I realized that I didn't want to make film for a living. Then I was like, okay, well, record store full time, let's do it. And at the same time, it occurred to me that the neighborhood where my record store was located was no longer sort of the best neighborhood for it to be. All of the artists and musicians and San Francisco freaks lived in the mission in the 90s and and our record store was not in the mission. So I said to the owner, why don't you just let me have it and I'll move it to the mission. So he sold it to me. Um, I got the money from two of my best customers who just lent me a little bit of money. Um, I was really happy that I got to pay them back really quickly, but that uh, enabled me to take over the store and move it to the neighborhood where I think it belonged. And how did you transition from doing that into working for Apple? So after 14 years, um, some of which, as I said, was part-time when I was in school, some of which was me managing it, and then a lot of it was me owning the store and having my own staff. After 14 years, I was just kind of done. Like, I'm really omnivorous when it comes to life, and it's not that I didn't love it still, but I felt like I had done what I came to do. Like mm-hmm. in the in the independent music industry, like owning a, your own record store and kind of getting to really like immerse in your own bliss of like, this is the music that I love and I get to turn on all of my customers to it and the rest <laughs> of the world. Like that was great. And I was so immersed in it for so long. And then I was like, but what else is there? Kind of thing. So owning a record yeah. store is awesome. It's one of the coolest things that you can do in the music scene. But by that time I was like, what else does life have to offer? I'm just really omnivorous. I wanted to see how other people lived. I love that spirit. I think that takes a lot of courage to do that, though, to be willing to transform your life around. And that's what I think is so exciting about talking to artists a lot of times is that you're continually reinventing yourself and you're developing that. um, I think they either have that innately or learn to develop that comfort level with the unknown and being willing to continue to expand their definition of themselves and their comfort zone. Um, So it's really exciting to hear how you've been able to do that so successfully throughout your life. So it sounds like you were looking for the next thing. And did you seek this opportunity out? Were you kind of recruited from Apple at this time? How were you able to see yourself and your passion for music translating into this tech industry? Well, I, when I left Aquarius Records, I didn't know what I was going to do next. So I had made sure that I had set aside um, enough funds 
to kind of to be okay with not knowing what I was going to do next for a little bit. And I started working in political campaigns. Um, there was kind of an historic political campaign that happened that year here in San Francisco, which I won't go into. Um, but a lot of artists got involved in it anyway. So I took some time off and kind of started becoming articulate with what my skills were because I had spent so long at the record store. I'd never had to write a resume. I'd never had to define what my skills were or anything like that. And LinkedIn was had like just started. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, oh, maybe I should put something on LinkedIn. So I was just kind of having a good time doing whatever, working in politics, making things happen and kind of loving falling in love with my city again. But one thing that happened was I had been an Apple fan since I was a teenager. When I was a sophomore in high school, my dad brought home an Apple IIe and I learned how to program on it. And I loved it so much and it made so much sense. And so, and since then I had owned like every iteration of, you know, iMac when it first came out and all the Mm -hmm. different um, models of Apple computers. So I just was looking on Apple's job boards one day and noticed that they were looking for... um, some producers as they call them to help build the iTunes music store and so I thought this is perfect this is what I've been doing I'm super Apple literate and music is my life so it made a lot of sense Mm -hmm. um so I found myself there and my first role there was managing the iTunes Essentials series iTunes Essentials which doesn't exist anymore um was iTunes version of like the mixtape so we would put together compilations on different artists or different topics so everything from, you know, Bruce Springsteen for beginners to, <laughs> you know, like hip hop workout mix, that kind of thing. <laughs> I managed a small army of freelance compilers across the globe. That was really fun. Oh, my God. That sounds incredibly dreamy. Just basically making playlists for a living. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and that's I mean, I've always gotten paid to do that, basically. Right. I, I think that if you want to sum up um, my time at the record store and at iTunes and Apple, it's that I was getting paid to curate um, other people's work. I was getting paid to support uh, and evangelize other people's work, my friends that were musicians, all the, you know, the bands that I love, the great app designers and game designers that are doing groundbreaking work in the mobile space now. All of that was my job to kind of collate it and go through it and and define what makes a great app or what makes a great single kind of thing and pull that out. So I did that for so long. And then by the end of my career at Apple, I realized, or, you know, as I was beginning to think about leaving, I realized that curation is great and I'm naturally good at it. It's just kind of what I do. But I wanted to focus on my own creativity and not anybody else's for the first time in my life. I feel like there's something really key here that other artists can learn from, which is once you've identified your core passions and skills, being able to translate that into a lot of different spheres and industries and allowing that to open up more possibilities for what you can do with your life. Um, Because I think that something that's come up in conversations in the past is um, in order to be successful artists just really need to take the skills that they're already using in the studio and apply it to their business thinking or uh, learn to apply it to other industries. And I love how you've been able to kind of do that in the reverse, but it's enabled you to um, jump into all these different career paths. I also wanted to ask you, what were some of the signs that you realized it was time to make this change? Was it something that was more just intuitive? 
where you felt like my chapter here is coming to an end and it's time to start looking around? Yeah, so not a single moment, but sort of a gathering chorus of voices in my head, right? So for one thing, I was done with the commute. The commute is kind of awful from San Francisco to uh, Apple headquarters in Cupertino. So there was kind of like the ennui Uh of that. But then this was like in 2011, 2012, when blogging was kind of more of a thing, remember? Um, Like pre-Instagram, kind of Facebook was kind of happening, but maybe not to the extent that it is now. Anyway, so I was looking at a lot of blogs on my computer every day and I'd be typing and feeling so envious of all these people that were taking photos of like the beautiful work they were making. Like the whole maker movement was kind of starting to be called the maker movement, right? And people were just Mm -hmm. proudly displaying the things that they, tangible things that they had made. And I felt my hands just getting itchy and restless and wanting to make tangible things. Um, and eventually that those voices got so strong and so loud in my head that I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I could just, maybe I could go. And by that time I had already bought a house in San Francisco. And so I felt like financially, like it was okay to go off and not have a job for a while or be a a foofy artist for a while. You know, I didn't even know what I was going to do afterwards, but I felt Mm -hmm. like financially secure enough to leave. I feel like that's such a huge lesson for people to, to take away as well. Like it, it's really scary when you make a jump changing your career path or, or choosing to go uh, to be like fully self-employed. It's so smart to line up your finances in advance so that if there oh, is yeah. a difficult adjustment period, you are prepared for that. Yeah. I took the plunge going full time a little bit over a year ago and it it was like a very slow tapering off from like a full-time job to a part-time job to like really, really limited hours. I had to constantly remind myself like save for when you step away from your job because <laughs> it's going to be a little yeah. a little bumpy. And it totally was a very bumpy first year, but I came out alive. <laughs> Yay. Congratulations. Good for you. Thank you. I think the important thing is to remember that you're in control, right? You made the decision to leave whatever you were doing before. You get to make the next two, five, ten decisions in the next few years um, about what you're going to do with your time and your money and your life. Like, you're mm-hmm. in control. It's important to remember that and, and to not feel um, like anyone else is calling the shots for you. I totally agree with that. Yeah. When you made that transition in stepping away from Apple, mm-hmm. what did that really look like? Did you know exactly what type of art making you were interested no, no. in or you were like, <laughs> I just want to play around and hope something works out? Yeah. So the first thing I did was sign up. Well, the first thing I did was go on vacation <laughs> for like a month yes. <laughs> just to get everything out of my <laughs> yeah. system. Got to take a break. Yeah. I went to Morocco and Spain wow. for like a month. And then I came back and I decided that I was going to take classes because I didn't know what form my creativity was going to take. And I didn't know, you know, if it was possible to make a living from your own creativity or not. So I just decided to take classes in anything that I was even slightly interested in. So I ended up taking um, like a dozen just classes here and there, ceramics, printmaking, stone carving, interior design, LED lighting, like so many different classes. I can't even remember them all now. Yeah. So I just took them and, you know, within five minutes, you would know whether or not you enjoyed the process of doing something or not. And so the only two things that stuck with me were wood carving and I took a refresher macrame class. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom had taught me macrame in the 70s, but I'd forgotten sort of how to get started. So I took like a refresher course and it was within five minutes. I was like, oh yeah, I remember this feels so good to do this. I just want to keep doing more of it. It was the same thing with wood carving. 
Um, and it's funny because my dad had been a woodworker. And, you know, as I told you, my mom had taught me macrame. And so, like, the only two things that stuck were the things that my parents had done. And Oh, how funny. Isn't that crazy? Like, it didn't really occur to me until, like, a year after all I took all those classes that those had been my parents' things and that those early experiences that you have or are around those early experiences that they resonate somewhere inside of you and they come out years later. Like I had never thought that that would be the case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Never underestimate the power of your parents' influence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the power of early experiences. It's incredible. Oh, since we're audio, I should say that uh, we're, we're watching Wendy work right now as we're talking. So there's, there's all kinds of not work (laughs) happening. You just can't. See yeah, it. I love the backdrop. It's so beautiful. There's uh, looks like hundreds of knots hung on the wall, and then you're also working as we're talking. So productive. <laughs> yeah, is that I'm the like, the year of knots behind you? Yeah, that's the year of knots. So, um, would you like me to explain what that is? Yes, yes, please do. That was that's one of yeah. my questions, and yeah, I found your work a while ago, and I was drooling over the year of knots, and uh-huh. then when we realized we could get you on the podcast, I was like, I am so excited. This is going to be so oh, good. That's so nice. So yeah, so I'm sitting in front of the year of knots, which occupies a two corners, uh, sort of two walls in my studio, and I kind of consider it my artist's palette, the same way that a painter has different colors or a guitarist has chords that they know. For me, my language is the knots, and I have it on in my studio. So the way the, that the year of knots happened was I had been, as I mentioned, sort of doing a lot of macrame and just kind of making the same sort of beginner projects that everybody else does, you know, plant hangers and wall hangings, um, early beginner kind of stuff. And a lot of, I was starting to notice that a lot of macrame craft work kind of looks the same. It's coming from a lot of different people, but a lot of it is really similar looking. You're mm-hmm. nodding like, you know what I'm talking yep, about. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and my work this was no the different. Instagram kind of explore feed. <laughs> full, fully. I know. It's so true. It's unavoidable. Um, And my work was no exception. It was kind of looking samey-samey. And so one day I realized that I was like, why is that? Why is everyone like obsessed with making things like symmetrical and and the whole thing? Um, And I what I realized was that most macrame really is only the same two or three knots just made over and over again in repeated but different combinations. And so I had a light bulb like brainwave kind of moment, like an epiphany that I just needed to learn more knots. And if I had more knots, then I would have more of a voice. Like only having three knots is like knowing ABC. And I wanted the whole alphabet so that I would be able Mm -hmm. to be as expressive as possible with my chosen language. Um, that being knotting. So on that day, I decided that, oh, I I just would learn one knot every day for a whole year. This was like in early January in 2016. So I was like, oh, this is a great New Year's resolution. I'll just learn one every day for a year. And it just turned out to be an incredible project that changed my life and gave me the confidence to call myself an artist, full stop, no apologies. Um, and, And also gave me the language that I speak with now. And I really found my voice and my work doesn't look like anybody else's for that reason. Like before, I've seen a lot of macrame artists and there are some people that are doing really, really beautiful and unique things, but Mm -hmm. I have not seen anyone else doing stuff like yours. 
Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be an inspiration. Um, and I think that's part of the artist etiquette is like, yeah, be inspired by your fellow, you know, artists, but don't copy, right? Be inspired, yeah. but don't copy. Like, be inspired, mm-hmm. but then evolve your own work um, from mm-hmm. the things that you're inspired by. Yeah, um, and it, it sounds like this was a project that really obviously challenged you as a maker to learn all of these new different methods, but also kind of positioning yourself as an expert, because now you know Mm -hmm. all the knots, you can do it. You can do it all. Yeah. I mean, for me, fluency is a value that I have. I, I value fluency and proficiency and people who are experts in what they do. And that's the craft person in me coming out, like Mm -hmm. as opposed to art. Do you know what I mean? Like craftspeople really know their materials and really speak the language of the materials and the context in which they work. And I think I, that I just respect that so much. So, you know, when I first started on this creative journey, I thought of myself as a craftsperson, especially with the woodworking too. I was just obsessed with getting the work to look beautiful and understanding my tools and keeping my gouges sharp, you know, yeah. um, as a craftsperson. So I still bring a very craft oriented approach to the work that I do. Um, but I also think of it as fine art and you know we could talk forever about what are the overlaps and the distinctions between craft and art but Mm -hmm. I do think of it that way yeah that was definitely a very a very common conversation in college uh Nicole and I both attended uh art school and that's how we became friends and kind of started Uh started the the early phase of the podcast but I I know I was always kind of torn between that artist and craftsman yeah dichotomy where it it felt like I had to separate the two but I still felt very much in tune with each part and I think it's it's such a weird thing to try to come to terms with because you you don't feel the need to have these separate distinctions I think it's it's good to recognize the different parts that make you whole and then pay them as much mind as you feel need but don't don't let it kind of stop you from doing what you want to do Yes, and that takes a certain level of confidence um, in your vision, right, and your skills to be able to be like, yeah, I know all this other stuff and all of that stuff is part of the conversation, but I'm still going to make decisions based on what I think is important. Yeah. And so um, just to circle back. So for me, having that confidence came from having the proficiency and the expertise that I had um, taught myself over the course of the year of learning all the knots. (laughs) And then were you or how were you sharing this project as it was happening? Were you blogging about it? Were you posting to your website or Instagram? Like how were you starting to share your work um, while you were developing this language? Yeah, that's a good question. So in the light bulb moment, the lightning flash, when I had the idea that I would learn a knot every day for a year, I also instantly also came up with the sort of framework for how I would share it. So I immediately knew that I was going to share it one post a day on Instagram and Facebook. I'm not sure how I knew that, but I was already a fan of people who do daily projects, whether it's um, sort of a performance art kind of fine art kind of thing, um, or folks just doing like the 100 day project, you know, that I think came out of an Ivy League university, but the artist El Luna has really popularized um, the 100 day project thing, you know, or even people just doing a month of like wearing the same jacket every day. I think there was some girl that did that or wore, she wore <laughs> the same black dress every day and made 30 different outfits. I'm just fascinated by projects that unfold over time and the changes that occur and the fact that mm-hmm. you get to join in. If you're part of the audience or if you're the maker like me, we all get to have this experience together. And there's something really lovely about that. And I also think 
that it's really fun to watch process. Even mistakes are super enlightening and you can learn things from them, whether it's you making the mistake or you get to watch someone else make a mistake and for them to be like embarrassed or humble about it or how they handle the mistake. Like there's something to be learned from watching artists and craftspeople at work. So I always love, I just find it so valuable to watch other people share their process. So I was happy to do it. Well, I think what you just said about process is what, it is the same thing that we share in wanting to know about other artists. I really love seeing artist studio process too. And Amanda and I both listen to plenty of podcasts about that. We love platforms like Instagram for that reason. Getting to see the behind the scenes is always really interesting. Um, and But I think that's kind of how this evolved too, is wanting to see more of that um, about artists' career paths. Because um, Amanda and I had each lived together just after graduating from college. And as we were kind of getting our own careers going and starting our own businesses, we were having a lot of conversations with each other about how to make this happen. And we were talking to our friends and mentors and really just finding our way. And so eventually that evolved into wanting to have conversations like this from artists whose work and lives we really admire because um, there's so much to be learned there. And I think that you know, we all benefit when we can be more transparent about, or when we get to benefit from the generosity of artists sharing their own stories. Um, So it's really exciting just to hear. What a nice way to put it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's good. Benefiting from other people telling, sharing their stories. That's really nice. So um, to go back to the year of knots, as you were sharing it throughout the year, did you find that the audience for your work was also just naturally growing out of that? How did you start to, I guess, professionalize the work that you were doing too, or start to take on projects? Did you find that there was just kind of an organic interest that was developing through your work um, that year? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great couple of questions. So let's see if I can address them. Um, so for the, the audience building part of it, yes. I think I started the year with like, less than a thousand followers and ended the year with maybe 14,000 and it, you know, it's doubled since then. So it's, it's kept on snowballing, even though the year of knots is over. Mm -hmm. And I, I attribute that to those folks being kind of like me, liking watching artists and their process. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that the feed was really beautiful. I mean, I consider it a successful sort of year long feed because knots are gorgeous. I think that, you know, we all know that they are these mathematical objects and that they're functional and most of them were invented by sailors and they all Mm -hmm. are, you know, they do things like knots are, were invented to, you know, to hold something or pull something or whatever to keep your shoes closed. Um, What I feel that I have to offer the world of knotting is the aesthetic perspective. Um, So I like to think that the knots for me reside at the intersection of sort of technology and utility and aesthetics. So what the feed Mm -hmm. was doing was presenting them as these aesthetic objects. And ultimately, it's not even the knots that I'm so obsessed with, but it's the notion of the line. And you guys went to art school, so you know that the the line is one of the very building block basic elements of art. I get this unending sort of visual pleasure in looking at a line as it enters a knot and the the way it moves around in the knot and then where it exits the knot. So the line is like doing Mm -hmm. all of these interesting things within the knot. And for me, that's what I find that quite graphically appealing and beautiful. And it's what I was trying to present via the daily photos on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I think the growing audience is a testament to um, being somewhat successful with that endeavor. Yeah. And this will be a comment to listeners. If you have not seen Wendy's work yet, 
do yourself a favor and go look at her Instagram feed right now because it is it's really cool being able to see the whole grid of all these different different knots that are presented so similarly, but they all are so so unique. Um, and what is your Instagram, Wendy? Well, mine is Wendy Chen, W-I-N-D-Y-C-H-I-E-N. And from there on my bio page, there's a link to at the year of knots, the year of knots, one word, um, which is the separate like feed just for the year of knots. So that's a closed feed. Mm -hmm. I don't post to it anymore. It just has the 300 and something knots from that one year. And I also just recently released the Year of Knots as a super beautiful archival pigment art print that's huge because there's like more than 360 knots in it. So it's like five feet high and four feet across. It's like a huge poster. Oh, my God. So that's available, too. I want to say I saw on your website you have a book coming out next year. Yeah. And the book is on the same topic, kind of what we've been talking about. But it's, you know, the questions that I most get asked are how did you find nodding how did you find your form of creativity what's your artistic journey been and Mm -hmm. can you teach me some knots (laughs) so the book was kind of to answer both of those things so it's a little bit teaching um, just some really basic knots and a couple of complicated ones and some that I invented myself just to kind of get your hands moving and get your hands busy Um, because I'm hoping that some folks who aren't making art now uh, will pick up the book and actually get their hands moving and, and start to love that feeling um, not necessarily make rope art, but just get into the feeling of making something. And then they readers may take that into totally different disciplines. But if, if that happens, I will consider the book a success. And when is that coming out? That's coming out on Abrams and it will be published in the fall of 2019. So about a year from now. Awesome. Yeah. Well, as soon as that comes out, we, we're very excited to see it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Um, and you have a, do you have a project up right now, uh, Mutations? Yes, there's a show in Oakland at a fantastic fabrication house called Local Language Art, um, mm-hmm. who do run a residency program every two months. So for the residency that I did with them, they worked with me using the CNC machine, which was a machine that I've never really gotten to be hands-on with before. So that was fantastic. And we constructed these wooden brackets to hold these giant splices that I made. Splices are a kind of knot. They're a a family, like a subcategory of knots. And splices are, to me, like one of the most interesting types of knots. They, um, it's kind of like the rope is eating itself or like attacking another piece, kind of like a snake eating its tail. Yeah, splices are Oh, yeah, the, the Ouroboros. Yeah, exactly. I could nerd out on them forever. And I did so with this show. So that is there through the end of November. Um, and we'll we'll share a link to that so anyone in the area will know where to go go see it. And, and Thank you. Uh, all of that good stuff. I wish I was nearby and I could come see it myself. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go check it out. I'm just across the bay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the, like, kind of how, aside from the year of not, um, how you built your creative or your, like, career momentum to make it a livable, livable yeah. path. Yeah. So, like I said, when I was at Apple and I was sort of looking at the work of makers and sort of the maker movement, I thought, wow, that would be really cool if I could make objects that other people would want to pay money for. <laughs> 
So <laughs> I started off carving wood and this was like, you know, in 2013, I think wood spoons were having a big moment. What I did with macrame and with wood carving was I made stuff that I thought I could use. Um, so, and I cook all of the time and I have a mug of tea. So making a spoon seemed like the obvious thing to kind of start with, but I didn't take it much further than that. Cause I got so into carving spoons and so into exploring the different types of wood and the different properties of wood. And then I got into teaching spoon carving. So teaching became sort of the way that I was expressing myself, but I was selling the spoons a little bit, but it's hard to sell a utilitarian object, even if it's an art object, but if it's a, an object that people are going to use, it's really hard to sell those at art prices. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to do that. So um, I think had I taken the wood carving further into the realm of art and away from utilitarian objects, I could be making my living from that now, but it wasn't the direction that I chose to go in because the knots took over. Now, concurrently with the macrame, so I, in, in the early days of when I was making, when I was starting to knot, I came up with this idea to make a, a hanging pendant lamp and I call that the helix light. And it's a super basic macrame knot that every beginner macrame artist can knows and I teach how to do it in my book. Um, I started making a light. So again, this is a utilitarian, like useful household object that I've kind of elevated to the level of art, but it's, it's, you know, it's a product. And with, within a couple of years of me selling products via wholesale with stores and via my online shop, I realized that I was becoming less and less interested in making quote unquote products. I'm doing the two fingers in the air thing right now, making <laughs> products. Because what I realized that as the lights got more and more popular, I realized that if you're going to make a product, the problems that you end up having or the challenges that end up becoming part of your daily life are challenges of like the supply chain and volume and what's your wholesale prices versus your retail price and packaging and fulfillment and all of that stuff that yeah. I was not interested in solving those challenges. Like I'm not interested at all in problems scale and also boredom, right? Because a customer is going to expect that the lamp is the same every single time or you know yeah. if um if some if a customer placed a big order they're expecting them to all look exactly the same and that's kind of the opposite of being artistic i think um so i got bored really fast with making them um i think it's a beautiful the helix lights are a beautiful object but for me the creative part of designing them was over and then i just kind of had to start making them over and i had assistants that were helping me the more I realized that products weren't what I was interested in, the more I went in the direction of making one-off, site-specific, large installations. And mm -hmm. once I started doing those, it was like game over. I love making work that responds to the site on which it's located, um, and that's really large scale. Yeah, and you've done so many beautiful installations. Um, if you are listening and go to Wendy's website, you can see images of a lot of the interiors that she's done. But I would love to know how did those projects start to come about? Were you starting to actively seek out spaces for your work? Or who were you connecting with to start to... Um, move your work into that realm. Yeah. So um, I never go out looking for work. Everyone kind of finds me. I've made myself available, I think mainly via Instagram so that that will happen. I think that a lot of artists do that right now, right? We have Instagram accounts and we have websites and we're very contactable. Yeah. Is that where a lot of professional projects have come from? Yeah. 
yeah, um, everything has come from, I think folks and maybe Pinterest too. Like I wouldn't be surprised if my, one of my first large scale installations, they just typed in like rope artist San Francisco or something. So it was a local Mm -hmm. restaurant here in San Francisco that found me. Um, it was the interior designers that find me and nine times out of 10, it's the interior designers that have their finger on the pulse and know where to find people Mm -hmm. like me. So all of my clients are interior designers and architects. Um, and so they somehow found me needed a rope wall done at the very last minute. I was not part of the planning process. So they were kind of desperate and needed me. Um, and since then, this restaurant client has become my best client and I've made work for them in like seven cities across the U.S. And it's been such a fruitful, great relationship where we kind of do something new in every restaurant, but, um, with the common theme just being that it's made out of rope. And it's nice Mm -hmm. that they're they're conscious of that but you get the opportunity to come up with a new design for each thing but they're all sort of part of the series with them yeah I think it's something that you have to do when you're an artist is protect yourself like a lot of times folks will see work that you've done in the past they'll point to that and say I want that but it's your responsibility as as an artist to say great I'm so glad you like that let's evolve it a little bit or create something new so that I as the artist don't feel like I'm repeating myself all the time I mean that to me that would just that's the wrong thing to do is to be repeating myself all of the time yeah do you have any advice for artists on broaching that conversation I think maybe the way that I just said it is the way I've said it before which is like oh I'm so Mm -hmm. glad that you like that and then you can say what is it about your space if I'm talking to the client what is it about tell me more about your space and your site and what you're looking for in terms of concepts or uh, shapes or colors or that kind of thing I'm so glad that you like that thing that I made before tell me more about your space and I would love to try to evolve this idea and make something custom for you and frankly when you tell clients that you're going to make something special and custom for them they're going to feel really good about that that sounds so much better than saying like oh I just ordered this thing that I saw before so everyone wants something custom and special for them right (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and I I can second that for sure, because I'll have times where people will be like, oh, I saw this illustration of yours online and I, I love it so much. I want that on my branding. And I'm like, well, that already exists someplace else in its own world. And I'm happy to do something in that direction with you. But let's come up with something very specific just for you that you can use and it won't be confused with any of my products. It can be difficult because people just see what they, they like and want more of that. But it's good to like set that expectation and then they are surprised. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you put that really well. And then what you've got at the end of the day is a body of work. You don't have one piece of work that you've repeated over and over again to the point where you're totally bored with it and don't love it anymore. But then what you have is a body of work that has your voice all over it. And it's all kind of related, but different. Yeah, I think I think that's part of the goal of what we're trying to get to here. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I was curious to know because my work in the studio is really process-based also, and Mm. I paint um, really intuitively, but I've also started to move into the realm of mural painting and take on more site-specific commissions. And so it's been kind of new for me to try and figure out how to adapt my studio process to that or to be able to have those conversations with potential clients about what my process is like and to to have something to share with them or show them that will um, give them an idea and get them excited about where the piece could go, but leave it open-ended enough to where, um, you know, it's not an exact replica of something that I'm showing them. Um, so I was just curious how you kind of um, get your clients on board with that and 
um, give yourself the creative freedom to be able to do something a little bit different each time. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And I'm so glad that we're all like very aware of it and articulate about it because it's something that you want to be aware of, right? As your work matures and you become more known for, you know, being awesome and good at what you do, then I think that you, um, you know, folks will automatically kind of give you greater and greater latitude to just, I mean, at this point now, when folks come to me about a space, they say, here's a space. What do you think? What do you think would be great here? Um, what would you like to? Yeah, make? that sounds like the dream. Yeah, and it's nice, and it it's just it just I I mean hopefully it means that I've been that I've made good work and that I'm coming across um, that I'm hopefully what it means is that I've made good work and earned potential clients' trust. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask uh, if you have any like habits or routines or tools or resources like anything that you're using in your your work life to kind of manage it all and and to keep it from overwhelming you especially if you're doing so many projects um, I do feel overwhelmed often <laughs> so yep. that Thanks is for an your ongoing yeah so that's an ongoing challenge that probably everybody has so I mean, I'm trying really hard to keep this a one-woman show. Um, I have managed teams in my two previous lives for so long, teams and staffs, that um, it's kind of a novelty for me to get to just do it on my own. And I also have realized that as an artist, I really need my alone time. Like, I treasure my time in my studio when I'm alone. Um, because that's where you get to like fuck up and make mistakes or like be lazy or be busy or whatever, like anything and nobody's watching. Um, so I'm trying really hard not to have a team. So that being said, um, I have learned how to say no, like in the past year, I've learned how to say no to projects that I felt were not pushing my work forward towards the goals that I have. Um, I've learned to say no to projects that I felt like were asking me to repeat myself, like we were just talking about. Um, And I've also learned to ask for help when I need it. So like I have an accountant, um, I work with a press representative. I have a business coach. So all those folks who are really good at doing something that I'm not very good at, I just consider them part of the team, but they're not here on a daily basis. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Knowing when to, uh, when to outsource and when to, to set boundaries for yourself kind of. Yeah, exactly. Those two things. Exactly. (laughs) These are, these are things that are so difficult, but it's, Especially if you value being independent and and handling everything yourself. And if you're like, if I I can figure it out, but also knowing that your time is valuable. And if you're wasting your valuable time working on something that you're not good at or not passionate about, you're taking away from the the time that you could be creating. And it's it's so hard to to know when to outsource and when when to do it yourself. But it it sounds like you you are doing very well at that. Well, I feel like sometimes it's hard to know when to outsource, but sometimes it's totally clear when to do it, right? Like, I don't want to have to do my taxes every year or learn how to do my taxes from the point of view of an artist, because I'm sure there's some, Mm -hmm. like, voodoo way of doing that that I don't care to know about. (laughs) So I have an accountant who only works with creative, so she's great for that. Um, So that was, like, a total no-brainer. And, you know, I use all of the the 
online software that I guess everybody else uses as far as invoicing and billing. I'm super organized when it comes to that stuff um, and online banking and blah, blah, blah. And another no-brainer for me, well, actually it wasn't a no-brainer, but I work with a PR representative and that was kind of a journey for me to kind of get to the point when I was like, oh, really? Does that, that seems kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, I think that was actually really interesting because I feel like you don't see a lot of artists taking that step and that's actually um, the way that you had reached out to us initially was through um, this boutique PR Co. And um, I think that along with your work and your career and all of these things uh, made it Amanda and I each really excited to, to try and get you on the show. But um, I did want to ask you about that because I think that you have such a professional presentation online. Um, everything feels very consistent. You have beautiful photography. I think it's really easy to contact you. You have so much information on your work and process. So it's clear that you have really prioritized that end of your work. Um, and I'd love to hear a little more about the relationship with them and how they kind of help in service of that. So when I started making art, I was, I launched my studio online um, and got my first studio in 2015. So just about three years ago. And I was 48 years old when I did that. And so I didn't have the benefit of starting to make art in my 20s and being like, oh, I'll just let it, you know, grow quietly and organically while I figure stuff out for the next decade or kind of two decades. Like, I didn't have the luxury of that kind of time. Um, and I was very clear, like, I mm -hmm. wanted to make a living from this. I wanted to see if I could. I didn't know if I could, but I really wanted to make a living. It's I live in the most expensive city in the country. So I was like, I need to take this seriously and be professional yeah. about it. And mm -hmm. for me, like, being professional doesn't mean that it's less fun. It totally means that it's more fun for me because it gets to be like real and I, I don't have to be like oh is it a hobby or blah, blah, blah no I take it super seriously yeah so it seemed to me that the best way for me for my potential clients to see my work was by getting it in front of them via things like magazines or really great you know beautiful press right I knew that editors would love my work um, if they had the opportunity to see it but how do you get them to see it I mean there's so much noise out there right um, everyone's clamming clamoring for attention so it just seemed to me that it was like the most practical thing I could do would be to find um, a PR representative who loved my work and wanted to advocate for it and had expertise in the sort of lifestyle and art circles where my work resides mm -hmm. um and yeah at first I was like "Ooh, that's so not punk rock to have a PR rep <laughs> you know <laughs> um but then I was talking to my friend Hannah who is a total badass in the music scene and she sometimes helps me uh, make some of the lights she's released like you know, videos and several albums in her own right. And she was like, Wendy, I always hire a, P a press representative every time I release an album. Like you have to, it's just like, uh, it would be silly not to. It would be like self-sabotaging yourself to not try to get as much attention for your work as you can because every great article that I get leads to a chain reaction that leads to my next two or three clients kind of thing. Mm. So press is wonderful. Um, it's a way of getting to the folks who are going to love my work. So it was a practical decision and I think it was the right decision. I'm really pleased. And here's the other thing that allowed yeah. me to make that decision was that because I had spent so long working at Apple, I saw, you know, how Apple Apple launches products, right? The, yeah. When Apple mm -hmm. launches projects or products or, you know, new parts of iTunes or whatever, they give it every chance to succeed. And that means getting the word out there and, you know, um, speaking in the tone of a friendly expert, you know, this iPhone is a friendly object and here it is. And here's all the great things that it can do for you to make your life better. So 
um, watching Apple do it and then all of the, you know, the, the app developers and the game developers and all these startups here in San Francisco marketing, um, which I guess I thought used to think was a dirty word. It's just a really <laughs> practical approach to getting your work out there into the world so that you can get more work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so much that I love about this here because I think that a lot of artists who come up from more of a fine arts background, there's this perception that, you know, eventually you might get a gallery or a dealer or somebody who's going to become that advocate for you and your work. And that, um, I don't know, it's a little more wishful thinking. And I feel like that is just so embedded in art school education. And for some reason, that's just sort of the expectation as a traditional fine artist. That's eventually what you're supposed to be working towards. Um, But I really love that you, one, you're taking control of your own destiny in a way, you know, recognizing that, well, you don't have to wait for someone else to come to you and offer to represent your work. But there are other advocates out there that um, can help get your work into different spaces. And also, seeing other potential avenues for your work to exist in and not, you know, thinking of that as just sort of one pathway, but that there are really so many other opportunities out there for um, putting your work into new contexts and spaces. And I I love that because I I haven't really heard of many artists doing that. And um, it has obviously worked really well for you. And I think what you said earlier, uh, just about being in control of your own work and life is really evidenced here by that decision. And it just seems like it's led to so many opportunities. It has. And uh, it's so interesting hearing you talk because I come from, as you know, in the beginning part, I was spending a lot of time with a lot of craftspeople. And we craftspeople are very used to representing our own work kind of thing. And so hearing you talk about it from the fine art perspective is super fascinating. Um, and I, I get that a gallery might make sense for some for the type of artist who doesn't ever want to have to meet their customers or have to deal with like the money part or you know the negotiating the back mm-hmm. and forth or whatever they just want to make the work i totally get that then in that case gallery representation may, might make sense but for me i love knowing the people who buy my work i mean i always say that the the best part of the last 5 years of making art has been the people that i've met along the way like we're all so interesting <laughs> and like i want to know who my customers are and like the look on someone's face when like i go to, if if they're if they happen to be a san francisco customer for example if i go to their house and install the work and we get to look at it together and big hugs all around like that's the best feeling to know the person who has decided to bring their work into your home into their home and and wants to live with it like I consider getting to the opportunity to know who those people are face to face that's a plus for me like I wouldn't want it any other way and frankly the other thing with galleries I mean maybe one day um but I think I think that I'm the right now the best representative for my work like I can sell my work better than anybody else can frankly um so yeah. that's what I'm doing. Yeah. So yeah. I'm doing. And I feel like that should always be true to an extent, um, no matter what stage in your career you're at or what you make as an artist, that you are going to be your own best advocate. And that doesn't mean you have to be the only person that sells your work, but that you are right. taking ownership over every part of the process. Um, and there are many wonderful galleries out there that do so much for artists. But I think that it's important to note that's not the only way to... Yeah place your work in front of people who are going to love it and who want to support your work, um, but that there are all these other avenues out there. And so it's just a matter of finding those people 
um, and maybe opening yourself up to considering other possibilities for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and there's something really beautiful about being able to interact with your customers or clients or consumers. And I, I do a lot of craft shows and whenever I get to be there yeah. and someone comes up to my booth and they're like, I love everything. And I'm like, you, you are who I am making work for. Like you are my, you are my person. Uh, and it's, it's the best it's, feeling. It's so good. It's really a beautiful thing. I feel like sometimes when people give you compliments, it can be very uncomfortable because you're like, you're complimenting things I can't control. But when people are are experiencing joy from your work, it's like, this is the most empowering thing yes. to know that I made something that is going to make you smile every day when you see it. Like, yeah. it, it has made me cry at shows so many times where people are like, oh my God, I want to buy everything from your booth. I'm like, you can. It's all for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I take credit cards. <laughs> That's so cute. But it's so, it's totally. so powerful and really... I don't know. And this is a little bit of a segue back, but also never underestimate the power of reverse engineering something that has been done successfully. Like what you were talking about with uh, with marketing and, and from working at Apple. Like it's true. Apple's launches are always really, really amazing because they do put everything into it and they don't underestimate the power of marketing and good branding and good press. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they do everything they can to help the product put its best foot forward, to give it every chance for success. Um, and so yeah. I try to do that with my work. Yeah. And that's, that is, I had not thought about the distinction before, but I do think that is something that probably makers are more comfortable doing than more traditional artists. Cause there is this idea of like self-promotion is shameful. Don't, don't do that. Don't talk about your work. Let people find it and appreciate it all on their own. It's like, yeah, but that ain't going to pay the bills. <laughs> I need money. Yeah, yeah. there's so yeah, much it's... to unpack there because the relationship between yep. art and commerce has so much tension and history there. So I understand where that comes from. But at the same time, I think that artists are always trying to navigate their own need to make a living, whether it's through their work or through something else, and they want to be able to continue making their work and support that. So if you do make a decision to try and support yourself through your work or bring in income through it, then you know you kind of have to confront that in some way. But I, I also really like the way that you talk about bringing joy to other people through your work and that, um, you know, you're providing a service in many ways and the experience that you have mm -hmm. making your work is you know ultimately what you hope the viewer to feel and so it's it doesn't have to be an ugly thing like this just transactional exchange for oh, like object yeah. or money but it's really about that relationship that energy and what your work can offer bring someone that's gonna leave a, a lasting and positive impact um, so I feel like reframing the way that you think about somebody purchasing your work and kind of what that means I don't know maybe help some artists to get over that hurdle if it really is just the mental block of viewing their work in that way uh-huh and and let me ask you this so that oh, this is such a fascinating conversation I'm so glad we're talking about it so <laughs> um because I didn't go to art school so like this stuff is mm -hmm. the kind of the angle that you're coming from is super interesting to me so is that something you're taught that like 
promotion is shameful and like thinking about the monetary about like the saleability of oh. work. Not that I do not that I do that. Like I don't make stuff just yeah. so it will sell because yeah, that's the definition of, of capitalism and that's not what I'm doing here. Right. right. Yeah. Of course. What I'm doing is making a living from my own creativity and setting my own mm-hmm. terms as to what yeah. that looks like. I, I don't think it's ever that explicit, but I do think that it's, I don't know, it's a little more subconscious. I, I just think the conversations, um, for the most part in art school, are very focused on the work itself. And I would say it's it's almost just more a byproduct of kind of a general neglect for that whole aspect of, of your life. Yeah, there's there's just, I yeah. think, a lot less conversation in general happening about it. Um and if there is anything, it's just, it always comes back to the work, which I think is really important. And, uh, you know, you've found a great way to balance your own creativity and to make your work the priority while also not feeling uncomfortable with talking about your work in this this context or seeing your work in commercial spaces or having people purchase your work. And I think those are all really important things. And I, there's just not a lot of conversation about that end of it. Um, I don't think in art schools... Um, I think it maybe depends on the department a little bit. Like if your department can go, that's true. We'll use I'm, we'll from use a like majors, um, that's very <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say we'll use like ceramics as an example because ceramics can very easily go into a really really fine art direction, and it can also go into just straight up utility. Yeah, um, and I think in those. In those realms, I think it's easier to have that conversation of like, are you an artist or are you a craftsperson? And like, I remember being in art school feeling a little insecure about leaning more in the craft direction. Like I felt like if I was a craftsperson, I couldn't be an artist or I wouldn't be taken seriously as an artist. And that was this weird sort of internal struggle that that I had and like, I had kind of like I jumped around from departments because I couldn't figure out what fit just right for me. I started as an illustrator and then ended up doing like book bookmaking and printmaking and photography, which are, you know, super different. Uh, but I wanted to learn all the skills that I possibly could and then figure out how I wanted to apply them later. Um, but I did feel like at school and, you know, granted, this is school like five, five years ago, right? Yes, that's when I graduated. Uh, <laughs> but my experience with that was probably just a little bit different. And I think that it was more focused on the visual work. And I felt like leaving school, I, I was very confident with how my work looked. And I mm-hmm. knew how to talk about it. But I had no idea mm-hmm. how to get it out into the world and to try to make an income off of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think... Pretty much immediately after school, I was like, cool, now I need to learn how to, like, create a business for myself. And then just a lot of time on the internet and some, uh, like, online courses help, helped me in that route. But I, I'm i not sure how – I'm sure it's different for everybody because uh, obviously Nicole and I going to the same school had very different experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm hearing is that, well, for neither of you, even though you were kind of on different tracks within the same school, for but it, for neither of you was um, some of the more practical stuff about selling your work was that mm-hmm. sounds like that just wasn't part of the curriculum at all. Yeah, or at least that was my experience. I probably could have gotten more like professional practice uh 
out of school if I had been more intentional about it. But I think I just didn't even mm. know mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. look for that side because I was uh-huh. just so yeah. focused on trying to make work that looked really good and honing my right. skills in that way. Fascinating. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, uh, like, stories or or? information that you would want to share that you feel like was really helpful in the growth of your career that you would you know like to share with with artists or craftsmen mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. both at a mm-hmm. at an earlier stage uh, I feel like a, some of that stuff has come up as we've been talking um things like you know give your work every chance to succeed and be out there in the world and it's not a bad thing to think about who might be purchasing your work and kind of maybe put it in front of them in some way. Another piece of advice that I have kind of related to the um, putting your best foot forward part is I pay professional photographers to photograph my work. Like, and I'm a decent iPhone photographer. I I know how to use Visco like everybody else does and like how to make (laughs) the photo look good for Instagram. Um, But for, there's no substitute for vibing, like finding a professional photographer that you totally vibe with, you know, whose style um, complements your own and paying them to photograph your work. I mean, not only will you then get um, high res photography from them that's suitable for print magazines and any kind of press that you get, but they also help you see the work um, with new eyes a little bit. And they're going to be really skilled at putting the work into the context, like the room that it's in or the angle that you're photographing it at or whatever. Um, They're going to be really good at that. So, um, you know, photographers are artists like anyone else. And so I just, I believe in them getting paid for their work. And I believe in partnering with them on photographing all of my big installations. I just think it's a really good investment. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because all of the photography on your website is absolutely beautiful. So it definitely shows. Yeah, I mean, the more professional that you can come across, that's how um, big projects sort of um, come to you and projects that increase in size and budget over time come to you, the more professional that you can be. God, I sound like a business coach right now and I'm totally not trying to sound that way. But (laughs) No, this is all helpful. Oh, here's another good piece of advice. Let me tell you this story. Okay, can I change subject yes this is a this is a good piece of advice because it totally worked for me so I had been at this summer I was kind of this year I've kind of been at the point where I've kind of been whining that I don't have any super successful artist friends that I can go to like with questions or that I can just be like what does your life look like and what does your studio look like and how do you, you can do call it? us now kind of no, thing. I'm just kidding. okay great <laughs> <laughs> that's why we started um, the podcast so we would have friends that we could go to well no exactly and I'm happy to share what I've learned along the way but like I said you know I'm maybe 51 years old, but I've only been doing this for like, you know, less than five years. So um, anyway, so I had been whining that I don't have anyone in my life that is super successful. And my favorite artist um, is this artist. Her name is Janet Eckelman. And I don't know if you guys know her. She does those insane nets that are super huge, like the city block sized nets. I saw her piece at the Renwick Gallery in DC a few years ago. Oh my God, that piece. Yeah. So I, she has a, piece here at um, our airport, San Francisco International Airport. And so I see it literally every time I fly somewhere. And usually I'm flying somewhere to go and make work for somebody. So it kind of sends me on my way. And like, I get really teary about it. Like sometimes I'll go early and just sit underneath it and look at it. Anyway, so I'm obsessed with her. And I saw that she was teaching a workshop in France this summer. She's American, but she was teaching in France. And so I 
paid money for the workshop and went to France to meet her and take the workshop. And it was the best experience. Like she completely took me under her wing and not even like her wing, but like we're, we're kind of the same age. So we're friends now. And, um, she was amazing. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe some great projects will come in the future, you know, between us. Um, but get, getting advice from her from a fine art perspective and from a very successful fine artist perspective was something that I was missing in my life. So I went out and found that. And yes. I think also key to the way that I did it is that I didn't like, you know, tap her on the shoulder and go, can I pick your brain? Which is the one thing that none of us should ever say, right? <laughs> I didn't let go. Can I come to your studio and take all of your time and pick your brain? Um, you should never do that. Like I, I went to her in the way that was... Um, you know, where she was inviting people to come and take this workshop. And so I felt like I approached her in the right way. And that was part of why we were able to connect in a really genuine, lovely way. So I believe in, you know, going to your idols or, you know, the folks that 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 inspire you um, in a way that makes sense for them um, and seeing what happens. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but that was a great, that was like the highlight of my year, I think, was meeting Jenna Ackleman. (laughs) It is so cool being able to to connect with other artists. And I know that was a huge reason why Nicole and I wanted to start doing the podcast was there were so many things that we kind of had to learn the hard way. And we wanted to have these conversations with artists, but not be the only ones gleaning information from them. We wanted to share that with our community and, and, you know, whoever else. One last question, Wendy, where can people find your work? Sure. So my website is at windychen.com. It's just my name, W-I-N-D-Y-C-H-I-E-N. Um, and I have um, several pages there devoted to the work that I've done in various places around the country. So um it's a good place to start. And then if you happen to be in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, or Chicago, or various other places around the country, you can go and see it in person. Sweet. Well, I'm not far from Tyson's Corner here in nice. Baltimore. That's that's where the rope tree is, my 30-foot high rope tree. That's kind of a good one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go check that out. <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time. I wish we could just talk to you all day, but we're so appreciative of you being willing to share your story and are excited for uh, our listeners of Beyond the Studio to hear it. Thank you, too. It's been so valuable for me to hear your perspective as well. I think we're all just learning as we go. So this has been a great yeah. conversation for me, too. So thanks. Oh, we're yeah. so glad to hear that. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. You know, whoever else is out there listening in, in iTunes or, or other platforms. Pod, pod, <laughs> podcast land. Yes. Yes. <laughs>